Well, I thought we would start out this morning together in, in a unique way. I used to be a teacher, you know, before I was a pastor. And uh, so I'd like you to take your bulletin and grab a pen and put your name at the top and number your papers to five because we're going to have a pop quiz. We're going to have a pop quiz. Uh, don't open your Bible. This is a closed book quiz. And if you cheat in church, you are for sure not going to heaven. Spouses are not allowed to help each other. Uh, number one to five. And I'm going to ask you five multiple choice questions. We're going to review some of the things that we've already learned in the book of James as we've been going through it. Faith in the Fire is the name of the series. So question number one is this. Uh, according to James, how must we respond to trials? Uh, A, freak out. B, consider it joy. C, binge eat. Or D, complain it till it ends. All right, now just write down your answer. Don't shout it out. A, B, C, or D, go ahead and write it down. Cover it up. Uh, that's number one. Number two. According to James, a double-minded person is like what? A, a child on a swing. B, a bird in the sky. C, a ship tossed by the sea. Or D, a goat at a crossroads? A, B, C, or D? Pick one. You know, if you get a good grade, we have a prize for you. So you should take this very seriously. Some of you regret not bringing a pen to church. Number three, if we endure trials, we will receive the what? A, crown of life. B, crown of thorns. C, medal of honor. Or D, an oversized check. Publisher's Clearinghouse. <laughs> All right. Number three, did you write your answer down? Number four. Uh, James says that the tongue is like all of these except A, the rudder of a ship, B, a spark causing a fire, C, an electric eel, or D, a salt pond. The tongue is like all of these except which one? So which one doesn't he mention? A, B, C, or D? I see conversations. You're not allowed to talk during a test. I will rip up your bulletin. And last, the last thing, number five. Which two Old Testament people does James use to show that works prove faith? A, Cheech and Chong. B, Abraham and Rahab. C, David and Goliath, or D, Cain and Abel? Go ahead and write down your answer. You have five seconds. Okay, put down your pencils. Let's go back through. Uh, number one, how must we respond to trials? The answer is B, consider it joy. How many of you got that one right? Yeah, pat yourself on the back. Number two, a double-minded person is like a C, ship tossed by the sea. Any perfect scores still? Perfect, all right. Number three, if we endure trials, we will receive the A, crown of life. Yeah. Number four, James says the tongue is like all of these except C, an electric eel. It's not like an electric eel. And that was confusing, huh? And number five, which two Old Testament people does James use? A, just kidding. B, B, Abraham and Rahab. Raise your hand if you got 100% on the test. Yeah, 
hey, we have a uh, free coffee for you in the fellowship hall <laughs> after the service. So great job overachieving. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> We're going to open our Bibles up to James chapter 3, verse 13. <clears throat> God loves it when we open our ears wide to his word. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you, he says. We do that by hearing his words. So today we'll talk about the war for peace. We must learn to resolve conflict if we want to make it through the fire. Conflict resolution is a skill every family, every church, every marriage needs to learn. Uh, how can we learn to be peacemakers, not warmongers? Well, that's the topic for today. Let's pray and then we'll get into the word together. Father, help us as we learn from your word. Thank you for everything you've already revealed to us. Thank you for teaching us what it means to go through hard times, to make it through trials, to count it all joy. Help us today, though, Lord, to deal with a very hard topic, conflict with other people. Father, I just pray that you would dig up all the way down to the roots conflicts that have injured our hearts. Lord, recent conflicts, things that were said, things that were unsaid, and even distant conflicts that still haunt us, I pray that you would help us to know how we can deal with conflict, how we can promote peace by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in James 3, verse 13. It says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Why does he say that? If you know the context from previous sermons, it's because there were people in the early church who thought they belonged up on the stage speaking to everybody. Oh, I should be up there. But they didn't have the spiritual maturity. Some of them weren't even saved. So James has to ask this question, raise your hand if you're wise and understanding. Okay, and then he gives a little test to see if you actually truly are. Who is wise and understanding among you? Verse 13. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. He points to the works, the deeds, that prove the faith of the person who claims to be spiritually mature. Um, it says good conduct. It says meekness of wisdom. So this is external. This is how you're behaving. And it's humble. It's meek. It's how you're behaving in the community. Who is wise and understanding among you? The person who knows how to behave in relationships towards those in the church family. Uh, jot this down. Number one, if you want to pursue peace, if you want to fight for peace, be humble and gentle with others. That's number one. If you want to be wise, if you want to be understanding, be humble and gentle. The word meekness there um, means this gentleness. It means this this, this understanding that those around you are breakable. And you're proving your wisdom and understanding, not by what you say, but by how you love other people, especially those who are more fragile and weak than others. So I looked around my house, and I decided to find something that was uh, breakable, something that's fragile. This is my, my daughter Cassie's snow globe. She got it for her birthday one year. See that? Isn't that pretty? And I would say this falls into the category of something that is breakable, right? And I think I know exactly how she would feel if I, if I went out on the sidewalk and I were to 
right? I think we know how it would end if I went out to the sidewalk and I just dropped it right on the ground. See, so I'm being very careful with it right now because I know this is important to her and I know that it's fragile, right? When I used to go to my grandma's house as a kid, she only had breakable decorations. <laughs> Every shelf was some priceless trinket that she had found. Don't touch that! Don't touch that! Don't touch that! We couldn't touch anything. She should have bought some barbed wire to put up in front of her shelves. So I know the feeling of what it's like when I'm holding something that's breakable. This is the way the wise and understanding person treats people, like, like they're breakable. And the wiser you are, the more understanding you are, the more spiritually mature you are, the more careful you are to handle God's people. The less mature you are, the more prone you are to, to not display the proper care for those who are precious to God. How do we judge spiritual maturity? It's a hard thing to see. You don't know on the outside if a person is mature or immature. You've got to watch them. You have to watch their relationships. But I love this phrase here. It says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom, the humility of wisdom. Uh, how are you doing it growing in humility towards others? The humble person the humble person isn't trying to supersize themselves. The humble person isn't trying to inflate their size in the group. They don't want others to see how big and smart and tough and bad and they are. That's not what the humble person does. The humble person doesn't want you to feel small around them. And the person who is humble shows good conduct towards others, which means I'm good towards you. I'm careful not to injure you, hurt you, break you. Uh, I'm good towards you. Humility and goodness show spiritual maturity. Let's ask this question. What does spiritual maturity look like? Let me give you some things that aren't spiritual maturity. You can write these down. It's not intelligence. Meaning, you can dazzle people with your Bible knowledge. All oh, your memory verses. Did you go through Awana? La-di-da. Did you go through some catechism class, write some report, get a degree? That means nothing. Is knowledge an important part of spiritual maturity? Yeah, but if that's the thing that you flaunt, you show your badges to everyone else, you're a know-it-all, that doesn't make you spiritually mature. Some of the most influential teachers and professors who are atheists and agnostics grew up in the Christian home and they could run circles around you in their Bible knowledge and they're going to hell. But they know the Bible better than you. Probably next to God, the person who knows the Bible the best is Satan. Not helping him. Bible knowledge is not spiritual maturity. Sometimes people flaunt, well, I've been in Bible study, followers. I've been through every Bethmore Bible study. I've been knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. And sometimes you feel like these people are big water towers filled with knowledge. And their head has gotten so big because they think, they think spiritual growth is getting more knowledge about the Bible. But it ain't. It's growing in love. Knowledge, you know this verse, right? Knowledge does what? Puffs up. Like I think in Nemo of that fish, right? 
the puffer fish. That's what knowledge does if it's not coupled with humility and love for other people. It's not intelligence. Write this down. It's not wealth. Some people assume because they have prospered financially that God must love them. Look at my bank account. I don't know what I've done, but God has blessed me. If you equate your portfolio to your spiritual level of maturity, you are blind and deceived. Blind and deceived. If you lose it all tomorrow, God would love you no less. If you doubled your income tomorrow morning, God would love you no more. Listen, your money tells you nothing about your God. Nothing. This is where you learn about God's love for you. And if you have handcuffed your understanding of God's love for you to your money, when it goes away, guess who else is going to go away? Your love for God. Because in your mind, he'll no longer love you. He'll no longer bless you. You have to be careful because you cannot serve both God and money. One of them will be your master. If you use God as a way to get money, then money is your God. Wealth is not spiritual maturity. Just because you have more than other people doesn't make you more loved or blessed by God at all. There is no rank that is attached to your net worth. Wealth is not spiritual maturity. Some, it, the sad thing about this is sometimes pastors and churches embrace this philosophy that prosperity proves that you are spiritually mature. It's called the prosperity gospel. Sometimes it's called name it, claim it, meaning because I drive up, you know, in, in my uh, $100,000 car and live in my $3 million house, you know God's favor is on me. And everybody wants to get around me because some, somehow I've got the lucky rabbit's foot. God must love me more. And if you get around me, you'll be rich too. But listen, that's a different gospel. All right? It cheapens the gospel to tell people it comes with a free car. There's a whole new universe that will be given to every believer in Christ soon. Amen? A city of gold. Why are we chasing after junk and promising it to people? That stuff can't fill their hearts. Wealth is not spiritual maturity. Next, it's not influence. Well, so many people read her books. So many people go to his church. He, he knows people in high places. He's so connected. He's influential. He's got power. That doesn't make him anything. Her influence doesn't tell you anything about her level of spiritual maturity. I don't care the letters, the degrees, where she went to school. I don't care where he was trained. That doesn't tell you anything about his spiritual growth. Jot this down. It's not talent. Oh, the way he sings. God has really gifted him. The success she has found, it must mean that God is really blessing her. And then you hear about the moral failings that followed that gifted person who didn't have a strong, solid foundation. Look at all the talent he has on the football field. I mean, he is like going all the way. Character wasn't there. It's not talent. What is it then? What is it? Everybody say, what is it? What is it? Uh, jot this down. It's love for others. Love is the greatest proof of your faith and spiritual maturity. How you handle other people, especially the weaker, especially those who you could look past, neglect, trample on, 
The way you treat those people shows your level of spiritual maturity. How gentle was Jesus? He took children in his arms and blessed them. He talked to a woman once who had been divorced five times. Bam, 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 bam. Five failed marriages. And she was living with this next guy. And the way he talked to her was so sweet and considerate and measured. What he could have said to her compared to what he did was so gentle, so polite, so careful. How humble was Jesus? He washed his own disciples' feet. He walked away from heaven to live here. He was falsely executed in a crooked trial and he said nothing. This is the gentleness and the humility of Christ. And this is what spiritual maturity looks like in the church and in the world. So number one, be humble and be gentle with others. The way you treat other people proves your spiritual maturity. Number two, here's a don't. So we gave you a do. Now number two is a don't. Don't be bitter, selfish, and fake. That's number two. Where do we get that? Well, it goes on in verse 14 to say this. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So there are some who are meek, humble, wise, and there are others who are bitter, jealous, selfish, and fake. Don't be bitter, selfish, and fake. Bitter jealousy here, those words are, are picturesque. Bitter jealousy means sharp zeal. The idea of you being sharp towards other people. Uh, elsewhere, that idea comes up when you read through the words in the love chapter of 1 Corinthians. This idea of being sharpened and ready to injure a person who comes to you. You're sharpened and your interaction with them cuts them because you're sharp, you're bitter, you're blunt, you're mean, you're not considerate. And then the word for zeal, really it just, it comes from the root that means to boil. So there's this like hot, like this hot emotion. It could be good or it could be bad. The context determines whether it's a good emotion or a bad one. In this one, it's a bad one. Um, so if you think about it, it starts with this idea of to boil up and then it's focused on yourself. It means you're really you're really like hopped up. You're really excitable about what? About you. And you're really sharp towards others about you. You're bitter, you're selfish, and you're fake. Two-faced. Selfish ambition means that there's a personal agenda, or there's a preference, or there's a hurt. My needs become the most important factor in this conversation. Uh, me first. If you, if you sit down with people who are stuck in bitterness, selfishness, what you'll find is this attitude usually surfaces when a person has been denied something they think they deserve. They didn't become the leader. They weren't asked to lead. When they are denied something they feel they deserve, the bitterness starts. It also comes out when they disagree with a decision. Well, I thought we should have done it this way. But the elders said this way. They disagree with the decision, and there's no gear in their heart to help them cope with that. So the only way they can respond to that is to click into, shift into bitter mode, 
and either behind the scenes or publicly to rival what they see as a disagreement. Um, so they are denied something they think they deserve, or they disagree with the decision, or they're held accountable to the same standard as others. So when you challenge a person who thinks they're all done spiritually to actually correct something or to grow in a certain area, who are you? Who are you to tell me how I'm supposed Suddenly they are wounded. And you have to be careful because when you listen to this person in their hurt, in their woundedness, it might sound like they genuinely have been injured. But then when you listen closely and you find out they were just being held to a biblical standard, you have to have the wisdom to say, oh, so someone just challenged you on an area where you need to grow and it hurt your feelings. But they get bitter and they get angry and they get selfish and they get fake. That's called selfish ambition. It says here, don't boast and be false to the truth. So see how these all work together. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast. So there's boasting going on. So now I'm going to reclaim my image in the eyes of others. Who are they to tell me this? Who are they to make that decision without me? I'm now going to boast that I should be the one in charge here and be false to the truth. There's different ways to interpret that, but one writer just basically said that could mean stop living a lie, meaning you're not rightly aligned to the truth. Uh, it could also mean in community you're not being real with everyone in the same way. You're being uh, two-faced, double-minded. Don't be bitter, selfish, and fake. Uh, I read recently when it comes to the word boasting or being false to the truth, I read recently that Rhode Island the state of Rhode Island, put out a new tourism video on their website. Maybe you weren't planning to visit Rhode Island. Go and watch the tourism video, and it could change your mind. But there's a problem with the video. After they released it, people started uh, emailing them and saying that, that their video contained beautiful scenic footage from Iceland in the Rhode Island Come See Our State video. Turns out, there was footage from beautiful scenic Iceland in the video. Then they started digging in more to this video, and they actually got some facts wrong, too. The video claimed that Rhode Island contained 20% of the nation's landmarks. Actually, it contains less than 2% of the nation's landmarks. Whoops! What were they doing? They were over-promising. They were boasting. They were really overselling themselves, right? And people will do that in the church. They will really oversell themselves. They will boast of their own glory and greatness or humility and kindness. But this is completely discrediting them. It's proving their spiritual immaturity. It's discrediting the gospel because they're not talking like people who are dependent on the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Fundamentally, at the heart of our faith is what? The realization that we are selfish and sinful and broken and Jesus needs to pull us up out of the mud and save us. A boasting person isn't reflecting that gospel. 
Don't be bitter, selfish, and fake. Why? Write this down. Because the world, the flesh, and then the devil have taken over. Look at verse 15. It says in verse 15, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. These uh, three forces are really what, what try and oppose us every day. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And it says here this wisdom, this so-called wisdom that this influential, wealthy person in this early church might be broadcasting about themselves, it's not the real deal. It's from the world. It's earthly. It's from the flesh, meaning the part of you that loves the world and hates God. It's, it's not spiritual. It's of the flesh. And it's not from Christ. It's demonic. So the world and the flesh and the devil have taken over when you are bitter, selfish, and fake. Ephesians 2, 8-9 tells us the foundation for our faith. It says, it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can. So if I'm all, I'm the best, I'm the greatest, who are they to tell me that I need to do? Me, me, me. I'm against the gospel. Boasting can, not always, but boasting can show a person is not saved. Their self-promotion, their jealousy and bitterness, their rivalry and contention could show that they're not even saved. Jot this down. Don't be bitter, selfish, and fake because strife flows from selfish hearts. Strife flows from selfish hearts. It says in verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Disorder! Sin. Notice where it comes from. It, it comes from the inside. Do you see, have you experienced in a church or in a marriage, escalating conflict, unending strife, battle of the wills on the outside? Where does it come from? It reveals a self-centeredness on the inside. Often a person is hurt and angry, and they have a valid reason to feel the way they're feeling. But then the way they respond to those feelings are not biblical. They get on the blog. They go on Facebook. They call up their friends. And they're out to protect themselves. Don't be bitter, selfish, and fake. It's not wise. When it's all about your comfort, your recognition, your position, your ego, it will kill your drive to work for Christ. And you, it will prevent you from serving others because you're primarily looking out for yourself. Do you want to fight for peace? Do you want to find peace in your relationships? Hey, be humble and gentle with others. Don't be bitter, selfish, and fake. Number three, write this down. Resolve conflict biblically. <clears throat> Resolve conflict biblically. It says in verse 17, but the wisdom from above, so we had the wisdom from below, which is the world, the flesh, the devil. And now we have the wisdom from above. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is such a beautiful passage. How does wisdom behave? How can I resolve conflict with difficult people? 
Well, jot this down. Start with a pure, peaceable heart. Pure, peaceable heart. Look inside and cleanse out anything in your own heart that could pollute the process of resolving conflict. This is actually the opposite of what we feel like doing. What do we feel like doing? Let me tell you what is in your heart that you need to change. And if, if you start a conflict with the word you, it's probably not going to go anywhere good. You, and if you add the word always, you always, it's going straight downhill from there. I am working on, that's a great way to start a conversation. I, you know, I'm looking in my heart and really working on humility. I want to hear your heart on this thing. Um, if you're married, you have a diamond ring on your finger. And that diamond has a rating. And one of, the, one of the things they use to rate a diamond is clarity. There's clarity, there's cuts, there's the carrots, the size. Check it out. Here's a picture of, of someone looking inside of a diamond to see if it's clear. And there's a whole scale of how clear that diamond is. And inside diamonds, you can find all sorts of impurities. Look at that diamond on the right. There's, there's black dots in there, it's, it's fuzzy, there's scratches on the inside, and so that, is, that rates very low on the scale of clarity. And look on the left, that rates very high on the scale of clarity. There's no imperfections. Now think of that when you read the word, the wisdom from above is first pure. You have to put that picture up there with that eyepiece again. You've got to do that to your own heart and pull out every little impurity before you go into the conversation if you want it to go well. Focus on yourself and what God is teaching you first. And you have to be peaceable. Now that you've cleared out your own heart of bitterness, anger, rivalry, selfishness, now you're going to be peaceable. You want to fix it. You don't want to break it more. So jot this down. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. It says, first pure, then peaceable. Then it says, gentle, open to reason. So gentle, open to reason. Full of good fruits. What does that describe? If I'm gentle, if I'm careful, if I'm reasonable, if I'm full of mercy, what does that mean? It means that I'm quick to listen. I'm going to speak slowly. And I'm not going to get angry right away because I'm being gentle, peaceable considerate. I love this image here, this idea of being open to reason. Um, <clears throat> if you look at verse 17, 18, uh, it, or verse 17, it says, open to reason, peaceable. The, the idea there in the original language is that you are willing to yield. You will budge and give ground. You're lowering yourself and lowering the stakes and you're not coming into a conversation, a heated conversation, all defensive. I brought in, brought in a few things here that could help us understand how not to go about resolving a conflict. So, I'm really mad, really mad, and I'm going to go talk to that person. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind, and uh, got to get all ready first. I'm going to remember everything they've done in the past. I'm going to store all that up. And uh, I'm going to remember what they said and uh, how they said it. And, uh, oh, 
I'm going to share a piece of my mind with them. And when we sit down, they're not going to see it coming. I know exactly what I'm going to say. And uh, if this is how you get ready to go talk to somebody, if you get all guarded up and defensive, and you close your ears, and there's no way they're going to get anything in you. You're not listening. You're not going to feel anything they're saying. You're just going to, it's not going to go well. If you're getting ready for like a hockey fight, uh, you're not going to make peace. What else? What do you have to do instead? This is what you got to do. I'm going to let that pass. I'm going to forgive this. I'm, I'm really going to really going to open my heart up, and uh, it could hurt. I mean, if I, if I really tell them how much they mean to me, um, they could really hurt me. But I want peace, so I'm not going to go into a hockey fight with the person I love, my kids, my spouse, my church. You've got to lower your guard. It's not easy to do especially when the other person is wearing, like, chain mail. And they're not going to hear anything you have to say, right? Then it's not easy to walk in and be vulnerable and honest. Start with a pure, peaceable heart. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Jot this down. Don't settle for a heartless, shallow handshake. So when it says here in verse 17 full of mercy and good fruits. There's an abundance of love and mercy. Then it says impartial and sincere. What does that mean? Um, those words mean unwavering, meaning you're not swayed by the crowd. You're not like on your side one day and on the other side the next, easily influenced and gullible, sucked into the drama and spun around 10 times. You're impartial and you're sincere. That means you're not putting a mask on. Okay, sometimes when our kids disagree, I'll say, go apologize to your brother. And then the first apology is, fine, sorry. Often, adults use that same first apology, fine, sorry. Does that work? Does that really mean I'm sorry? No. It's not sincere. You're about to walk away and gossip to everyone about what you say. Yeah, I said I'm sorry, but oh, I can't believe what she said to me. It's not sincere. Don't settle for a heartless, shallow handshake, lacking in mercy, lacking in love. What's described here is you are full of mercy, full of goodness towards the person. They're not looking for a little bit of warmth on your end. It's gushing out of you. You really want to fix things. I know this is hard, but it's what God is calling us to get after. Then it says, here's the result, in verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is amazing. A harvest of righteousness. Imagine in your life, growing up out of the soil all around you, a harvest of righteousness. You learning spiritual maturity, God growing you and healing your heart, relationships fixed, Church is healed, marriage is strengthened, kids built up and not broken down, your job has less strife. Imagine all of that righteousness coming up. Where does it come from? It comes from your decision to make peace. 
and, and this is uh, an agricultural image. A harvest of righteousness is sown. So the idea of sown is throwing the seed out into the ground or planting it in the ground. So I love this idea that you're going with your problem and you're, you're planting it in the soil of peace. You're burying it. And immediately when I read that, the verse that came to mind was love covers over a multitude of sins. You're covering it over to make peace and you're walking away. You're walking away. You're putting it down. You're covering it over and you're walking away. And then God grows in you and others. But this is hard to do to actually let it go. It's a decision you have to make. You have to make the decision to resolve conflict in your heart, in your life, in your family, in your church. You have to put the problem in the soil of peace, which means you've done everything you can to make peace. And then you bury it in love and you walk away. It's best case scenario when both people are there covering it over and walking away. But you might be the only one there. The other person might have no interest in resolving this. You still have to go to God and do it. You know, I've really been looking forward to this moment right here, right now, from the start of this series in James. Because I know God is going to work in hearts in a special way like he hasn't before. You might be lugging around with you this 10-ton problem that has a name, a person who has hurt you, and you haven't put it down yet. And God wants better for you. God wants your heart to heal. But you have to put it down. This is how marriages recover. This is how families are restored. This is how you get through the day at your job. You have to lug that 10-ton burden into the presence of God and drop it with a colossal thump and then watch the dust all go up into the air and then you have to cover it in peace and walk away. If you do that, God will heal your heart. If you don't, you'll continue to get more bitter, more angry, more hurt, more selfish, and it won't get better. You have to put it down. You have to walk away. I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. You can write that down. Have the burial and walk away. But I want to give you a chance to actually do that, to follow through with that right now. What is it that you need to let go of? Something that's happened to you? Something someone has done or said to you? What is it that you have to let go of? What is the burden that has been crushing your heart? Who is it that you need to forgive? 
What relationship in your life has been broken for years? Maybe you haven't been willing to budge. Maybe they haven't been willing to budge. Peace starts when you bring your pain into the presence of God and put it down and walk away. Peace starts right there. You say, I don't want it anymore. I'm giving this to you, God. I don't want it anymore. And you cover it up, and then righteousness comes up from the soil. What's been haunting your heart? What's been hurting you for too long? You've never brought this pain to God. You've talked to him about it. You've complained to him about it. You've been angry with it, but you haven't brought it to him, put it down, buried it, and walked away. Listen, this is your chance to choose God's peace. This is your chance. No more bitterness. No more anger. No more letting your past chain your present. This is your chance. And I want to give you an opportunity right now to respond to what you've heard. Here's how you can do that. You're going to remain seated and the worship team is going to sing a song that really reflects what we're learning here. And I want you to pray to the Lord. But for some of you, it's been so long. What you're carrying is so heavy. I want to give you an invitation to actually stand up when the song starts and come forward. We've cleared out some space up here so that there's room. You could come forward with your problem and put it in God's presence and pray. I think God loves it when people take initiative, visibly, publicly take initiative. You could sit in your seat, that's just fine. But I know for some of you, you know that it's time for more. I think God especially loves the first person to come forward. He sees it, he knows it, he cares. But even the last person, he loves it. So the worship team is going to start playing right now, and you are free to pray in your seat or to get up, come forward, and bring your problems to God and pray. You're free to come right now.